The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione says he is pleased with the participation in a rose and a rosary for Nancy Pelosi campaign. As part of the campaign, a shower of roses was delivered to the U.S. Capitol yesterday, along with a sign of the Blessed Mother stating prayers for Pelosi, members of the Benedict Institute, spearheading the campaign at the Archbishop's request, also prayed a rosary on the Capitol lawn for the speaker. Help her and others understand the uh, goodness of embracing uh, the the, um, intrinsic worth of every human life from conception to natural death. So it's really the conversion of heart for the whole country. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Amen to that. Hey, good afternoon. That's pretty cool. 7,700 roses sent to the Capitol. That was Sunday. Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And uh, I know some of you were part of that. And I'm delighted to uh, just to report on that. We've been talking about how Archbishop Cordelione from uh, San Francisco uh, you know, started this campaign of prayer and fasting for Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. And I'm like, bravo. I wish every bishop in the country, and this is not a bash on them. I love our bishops. You know them. I'm a great defender of them. I, I wish there was a greater call to action. I, I, I do it every day with you, right? We talk about this every day, how important prayer is on so many different levels but especially for our leaders. And I hope you're praying for Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and for your governor and your congressperson, your senator, for those who hold that very noble office of governing, that they do it with morality and a well-formed conscience. I mean, that's what we need to to be praying for. Um, That's 7,700 roses. That wasn't the full number. It represented just a portion of more than 16,000 people who have joined the Archbishop and praying for Speaker Pelosi. And I just think, man, I wish 16,000 people prayed for me. Can you imagine the prayer? Imagine you had 16,000 people praying for you. There's a lot of grace. There's a lot of rosaries. There's a lot of hours of adoration. There's a lot of chapels of divine mercy. There's a lot of sacrifice. And I'll tell you what, we will see it. Nancy is so blessed by that. And she's a Catholic. I'm sure those graces will will take root and continue to pray for her and for other politicians. Uh, you know the prayers and those roses are part of a uh, of the rose and uh, a rosary for Nancy Pelosi campaign. Uh, it was started by the Benedict the Sixteenth Institute. I don't know whether you can still commit or not. I don't know what their next chapter is, but um, uh, the Catholic News Agency. I saw a piece this morning in in that I guess publication, if you will, that site, uh, and they said uh, this is what. Equality means every human life is equally sacred. Speaker Pelosi, we love you. It's not too late to choose life. Look, life's winning. I'm telling you right now, Rose is going to fall. You're going to hear that report come in June. We're about six months away from that news. We're going to have a, a more of a statewide, local battle for life. But attitudes are changing. Life is going to be upheld in this country. I'm absolutely convinced of it. So let's just we'll continue to pray for those who can export abortion and promote it and advance it let's pray that they they, they get it right right and you know it was, it was i love what they did there feast of our lady guadalupe when the virgin mary appeared to juan diego just a side note i don't want to spend too much time on this uh the sign for the bishop the you know juan was an aztec indian you know he had no respect in the culture here you've got this the spaniard this 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 bishop you know and, and juan had to wait forever to finally get to see him and when he did he told him about our lady's message and the bishop said well then i need a sign and he asked for the sign that he knew probably wouldn't happen for Castilian roses. They don't grow there in December in, in Mexico. It was a way of getting rid of Juan Diego, right? Uh, what happens? Miraculously, those roses are growing on Tepeyac Hill, 
The Virgin Mary takes Juan's cactus fiber tilma, arranges them, folds them up. And when he delivers them to the bishop, man, there's a flash of light. The roses fall. Is that the miracle? Wow, the roses. No. It was the image Our Lady left on the tilma, but it was the virgin who vanquished the culture of death in Aztec uh, culture and brought about a radical change. And I think it's the Virgin of Guadalupe, the Virgin of uh, the Immaculate Conception, or, or those patronesses of these great countries that we should be turning to. Because this is a great nation, and life will once again be upheld and protected. And I think Our Lady plays a big role in that. Um, you know, there's a saying in history. There was it's all a story I, w- I want to share with you, um, that, that if you ignore your history, right, you're, you're bound to repeat it. And that's hauntingly true. But it usually refers to learning a lesson from, you know, the further past, like, you know, who knows from how many decades back, right? You learn something in the past. If you forget it, it repeats itself. Well, uh, guess what? There's speculation Hillary Clinton may be thinking about running for the president again in 2024. She's been constantly on TV Sunday talk shows. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, she read on air what would have been her 2016 victory speech that she hadn't lost to Donald Trump. She apparently teared up while she was reading it. And the mainstream media, oh, <laughs> they loved, loved, loved it. They did. They loved it. And, of course, this past weekend, she warned that uh, you know Donald Trump might run again, a move she said that would mean the end of democracy. If he runs, it's the end of democracy as we know it. So the White White House spokesperson or spokeswoman, I should say, Jen Jen Psaki, said uh, she was asked about it, and she assured the reporter that President Biden has every intention to run for re-election. Now, just on a side note here, politically, of course he's going to say that, right? Of course he's going to say he's going to run for re-election. Otherwise, he becomes a lame duck president, right? Joe Biden, I guarantee you this. This is my prediction. Three years from now, will not be running for president. He will not. And Kamala Harris's numbers are so bad, she's not going to be running for president. You're either going to see a, a Pete Buttigieg or some other a Democrat, uh, you know, tries to the fore. But what about Hillary Clinton? Would she have a better chance than any of those people? Better than Klobuchar or Buttigieg or Booker or any of the other people who threw their name in the hat in the past? W- would that be a bizarre twist of political fate? Huh? Clinton versus Trump again. And would the same tactics work? Would would Clinton approach things a little bit differently with Trump? I don't know. We'll see what happens. It's still a long way off, but I just found that to be a uh, <laughs> just a bizarre uh, turn of events. I mean, a, an interesting theory as to what you might see in 2024. The world of politics is bizarre, period, right? Make strange bedfellows. We'll see, see what looms. You know, that's not that far away if you think about it. 36 months or so? Hmm. It's not that far away. You heard yesterday, I had Congressman Chris Smith. He joined me, right? Really have a lot of respect for him. Deeply grateful for his service to our country. And he's been one of those lone voices out there really championing um, the Uyghurs, those who are in concentration camps in China right now. He put forth a piece of legislation called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, right? It was an act that was being held up in the House in order to kind of water it down. A lot of major companies were lobbying it to make it have less impact on them. Of course, you know, Nike and all these other companies that are over there making their profits off of the cheap labor and off of the cotton and off of the other things that we're seeing come out of there. You know, it's human life. There's no respect for it. There's, it doesn't come for first in our country. The dollar does from many of these major corporations. So, of course, they had their lobbyists trying to water this thing down. Well, last night, the House did 
pass it. And they passed it in a unanimous vote. It's now going to go to the Senate. And I am sure the Senate is going to act on it. And I believe they're going to act on it today. So congratulations, Congressman Smith. I'm grateful for you joining us yesterday. I'm grateful for that victory. You know, I, this is a, a modern day uh, tragedy. Uh, it's, a, it's a Holocaust. A lot of these people are being murdered, experimented on, raped, abused. Um, so the fact that we are now getting more tension over there, praise God for that. Over in the Senate, speaking of the Senate, uh, it looks like things are not going well for the president. I, I don't know if you've caught much news today. The president's Build Back Better bill, the BBBBB, you know. Built back better bill. Uh, that, uh, according to NBC, as I saw a report earlier today that the Senate uh, Majority Leader, um, you know, uh, Chuck Schumer is looking to shelve the bill into next year in order to try and get a bill on 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 voting passed. Um, and uh, you know, that voting bill had been voted on earlier. It failed, you know, in the fall, and it failed. So I don't know why Schumer is bringing it back up again. It's not all that that clear, but. Um, Things, I guess, on Capitol Hill move at a snail's pace, uh, pace, so we'll see what happens. Finally, New York. Let's talk about ex-governor Andrew Cuomo not having a good day, right? The former governor has been charged with several counts of sexual harassment, right? He'd, been, he'd written a book on leadership. Remember that? His, his commentaries were on the air all day long, and people tuned in, and his brother Chris, they'd go back and forth, and... Well, he writes a book on how great of a leader he is, you know, and what he did during the time of COVID is the example. Well, apparently he used a lot of state resources to write that book. Uh, now the state is demanding $5.1 million in book profits that he made while he was governor. So a state ethics panel is uh, forcing Governor Cuomo, former Governor Cuomo, to turn over some major, major coin. And I bet you already he spent some of it. Who wouldn't? You know, you come into $5.1 million. Uh, he's going to have to pony that money up. Here's what CBS has been reporting. Former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is being ordered by a state ethics panel to turn over more than $5 million he received for his book on the pandemic. The ethics panel approved the book deal last year after Cuomo promised to write it on his own time and not use state resources or workers. But an investigation last month found his staff members worked numerous hours on the book during office hours. Cuomo's lawyer says he won't give up the money without a fight. Yeah, I don't blame them. <laughs> I wouldn't want to either, but, whew, you know, if you're going to use um, state resources, state researchers, you know, p people on the state payroll to research and write and assist in, in putting your book together, I don't think he's got a very strong case. You know, Catholic Vote reported that um, the Joint Commission on Public Ethics, they voted almost unanimously. They voted 12 to 1 to rescind its previous approval, allowing Cuomo to earn outside income on the book after they concluded that he violated pledges not to use state resources or government staffers to to prepare the book. So, so there you have it. So that's that's the latest there. One other big piece of news, and this is one that uh, we really should take a look at. It's another story that I try to keep before you and report on because, you know, sometimes your liberal media and other outlets don't like to talk about this or they spin it in such a way that is just not not true. Uh, the transgender advancement right now in our country is continuing, as you probably know. You, you've, you've got the male swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania claiming to be female, and it has caused just an, just outrage amongst female swimmers 
because he's still racing as a woman and he's still winning, right? Now, think about the upper body strength of a man. Th think about the, the leg strength of a man. Think about if I, at six foot three, went in, my arm span and legs, if I was in peak shape racing against some, some woman, of course I'm going to win, right? Of course I am going to win. Uh, it's right now, uh, in Philadelphia, schools are, are, are now allowing kids to change their gender identity without identifying their parents. Uh, I heard a conversation between UFC commentator uh, Joe Rogan and comedian Tom uh, Segura a while back discussing the issue of trans women competing in sports. Listen to this. When a dude transitions to becoming a woman, is like, I play basketball now. It's like, come on, man. Yeah. You have all those skills that you developed as a man, and now you're playing against frailer, smaller, you know. Yeah. Like that, to say that like you can't bring that up, that that's offensive, is ridiculous to me. Well, especially when it comes to fighting. In the process of being super progressive, you, you go towards the most maligned uh, part, section of society, which is like transgender people. And so everybody else who also has been marginalized by society, like women, mm -hmm. women get put on a, they get put in a less protected category right. than transgender women. Right. So a man becomes a more protected class of woman yeah. than a, a natural born woman herself. That's very interesting. It's that, crazy. That is. There are people fighting back, though, right? Now, that was a, a compelling point. Today, the, at the uh, Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, the Religious Sisters of Mercy, uh, several Catholic hospitals and even the University of, of Mary, they've asked the court to end the federal mandate requiring all health care uh, providers to basically do what any patient asks them to do in regards to gender transitioning, whether you know whether or not the, the that health care provider believed it would harm the patient. I mean, my heart goes out to many of these health care providers, you know, coming in, somebody wants to, to mutilate themselves or go through this procedure, and they, they don't want to do it. Um, you know, now we will see what happens. This is before the Eighth Circuit. Beckett, who is serving as counsel for the plaintiffs, said on their website, they said this, I'll quote, unquote, in May of 2016, the federal government began implementing a mandate that would require a doctor to perform gender transition procedures on any patient, including a child, even if the doctor believe the procedure could harm the patient. The mandate required virtually all private insurance companies and employers to cover gender reassignment therapy or face severe penalties and legal action. Interestingly, the mandate did not require coverage from Medicare or Medicaid. I'm joined right now by Professor Bob Destro. It's good to have him here with us. He's a professor of law at Columbus School of Law, the Catholic University of America, and the director and founder of the Interdisciplinary Program in Law and Religion. Great to have him here with us. Doctor, welcome back. Appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, this mandate went into effect under the Obama administration, if if I remember correctly. Just bring me up to speed. Why is it taking so long for, for this now just to get to the appellate level? Well, it doesn't really uh, – the federal courts won't intervene until there's a reasonable threat yeah. that they'll actually enforce it against you. In fact, that's one of the technical issues involved in the case. Uh, and this is the way the government plays games with you. They, they put in a guideline oftentimes, 
and and then they play games with you about whether or not they'll enforce it, and they say, well, you can't sue us until we actually enforce it. But then they, you know, I mean, it's 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 a cat and mouse game, and and the government has the advantage in that context. So, how can the government? Uh, how can they anyway force a doctor to do what he or she believes? is going to harm the patient. I mean, the doctor's primary responsibility is for the wealth care and, you know, best interest of that patient. Um, how can a, how can the government come in and force somebody to say, no, you're going to do this, whether you believe it's right or not? Well, I mean, they just claim the right to do it. I mean, this, they don't have any authority to do this. There's no right. law that says that they have to do it. And there's plenty of laws that, that uh, protect doctors not simply the religious freedom laws, but just general ethical principles that are embedded in law that uh, that protect doctors. So the short answer is the government doesn't have any authority to do this at all. So, so you know, I, I was um, I noted that uh, Medicare and Medicaid were exempted from the mandate. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Why? It almost seems a little suspicious to me. Well, there. <laughs> The, you know, there are rules for thee and there are rules for me. You know, this is, you know, one of the, one of the, the telltale markers you want to look for in any kind of a so-called mandate like this is who gets exempted and who doesn't. Right. And, and whether or not the government actually does it need to put its money where its mouth is, or is it actually going to say, well, you know, we may not be able to force you to do this, but you have to pay for it out of your own pocket. They're doing exactly the same thing with the vaccine mandates. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, the mandate even applied to children, though, didn't it? Um, mm-hmm. you, you th- how does the government do that? I mean, what happens to parental authority here? Well, there is, as far as they're concerned, there isn't any. And this is ideology-driving medicine. And, and we see the same thing. Like, I, I want to come back and say, look, this is a piece of a much larger puzzle. You know, the whole idea of having socialized medicine is that the state gets to decide what you get and what you don't get. And and so you don't get, you can't get early treatment for COVID, you know, but you can get transgender reassignment surgery on a priority wow. basis. You know, there's something wrong with that picture. Wow. So Eighth Circuit, tell me about that. Um, how do you think this will, will shake out? And uh, will the, the mandate be able to stand if it makes it all the way to the, the Supreme Court? Well, I think the, the lower court decision was very thoughtful. Uh, I thought the judge covered the, covered the, uh, the waterfront very, very nicely. Uh, one can never tell uh, from a, an oral argument in any circuit court or the Supreme Court exactly how the case is going to come out. Um, the, the bench was... Uh, was active. Uh, they asked very thoughtful questions. Uh, they put a lot of pressure on the government. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're not uh, they're going to side with the government. But I thought that the lower court's decision was was very well reasoned, and I think that uh, I'm hoping, at least, I should say that that the uh, the sisters prevail. Yeah, so do I. Well, uh, when will we get word? When do you think this will be concluded? And these hospitals, I would and say, it's going to be at least a month or two uh, before you. You know, we're we're not only coming into Christmas and New Year's, but you know, the judges need to really think through. Uh, this is because this is under religious freedom. Um, it, it may make it a little easier 
than if they were just dealing with it as a so-called sex discrimination case. You know, but it's a. Uh, but I'd say uh, give it a month or two at least. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. Hey, Professor. I'm sorry we had such a short time today, but it's always great to talk to you. I don't know if our paths will cross before Christmas, but have a blessed advent. Yeah, we have, and uh, and I hope we. I hope one of these days we get to see each other in person and not on a Zoom call or anything like that. I agree. I love it. Hey, thank you for your contribution this year too. It's it's been wonderful. I can always rely on you. I appreciate your perspective and your expertise. Uh, well, thank we'll catch you up so soon. Much. Okay. All right. Have God a bless good you. one. Have Merry Christmas. Thank you. Merry Christmas. That's Professor Bob Destro. Say a prayer for him. I have to take a break up against the clock here. We'll be back with more right after this. And when we return, we'll deal with, uh, well, (laughs) there was an article I saw that I think might get to you. If if you're a gun owner, you might want to pay attention to this. Uh, The Catholic case for guns. Is there a Catholic case for guns? How does that jive with what our bishop says? And is there a movement in the country, is there a leftist movement, to achieve greater gun control? We'll look at that and more. Stay with me. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash forester. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled a Texas law banning most abortions can remain in place. Now, the governor of our state, Governor Newsom, is calling for gun control modeled on that Texas abortion law. Getting you connected. The Drew Mariani Show. On Relevant Radio. This is the Drew Mariani Show. Yeah, well, thank you for joining me. It's good to be here. That's right. California Governor Gavin Newsom on Saturday pledged to empower private citizens to enforce a ban on the manufacture and sale of assault weapons in his state, citing the same authority claimed by conservative lawmakers in Texas to outlaw most abortions once a heartbeat is detected. So, boy, we are living in um, <laughs> just uh, engaging times. That's that's a good word to, to talk about this. You heard the other day on my show, uh, if you were tuned into it, if not, you can always hit my podcast, okay? So it's not a bad thing to do if you miss something. Uh, I was talking a little bit about how violent crime, especially homicides, are climbing in cities across the country. Uh, major cities seeing a huge spike. My, the city of Brotherly, the law of especially, the amount of homicides in that, that's, that city is just unbelievable. And it's, But it's not just the big metros either. I hate to just point those guys out, like New York and Chicago or L.A., uh, Philly. It's happening in those mid-sized cities as well. Cities like Toledo, Ohio, Louisville, Kentucky, Baton Rouge, you know, Louisiana or Albuquerque, New Mexico, places like that. So we're seeing a rise. The primary weapon of choice, of course, is the gun. And that has some people now calling for greater gun control. Let's let's take guns off the streets, right? Get rid of them and the gun and the homicide rate will go down. That's the mindset behind this. I do want to talk about it with you in a moment here. Gallup did a poll, and they found that 32% of U.S. adults say that they personally own a gun. Okay, 32%. That number is a lot higher than I thought. I mean, there's a lot of guns in America. I think there's like 400 million guns in America. Uh, but 32%, that's one out of every three U.S. adult personally owns a gun. And that's according to the poll. Some people may not have been truthful and said that they, they really owned one when they did. 44% report living in a household with a gun. All right, so that's that's two out of five people, almost you know one out of two, um, you know. So 
despite the, the, the number of increases in, in sales over the, I guess the last few years, that number has remained pretty consistent uh, since 2007. But usually after, you know, mass shootings, and, I, and we saw the flurry of these, you know, from Virginia Tech to Columbine to so many other ones. The ones that's happened this year. I remember reporting on these mass shootings, and mass shootings often defined by, um, you know, four or more people being, I, I think, injured or, or, or murdered as a result of it. And they were off the charts. I mean, you think, oh, there's only one or two a year. No, there was a lot of mass shootings. Uh, after some of these really big, high-profile ones, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, um, normally they issue a statement like the one that came after the, the shooting in May in, in San Jose, California. And I'll, I'll just share what the bishop said, just to give you a perspective on what our church hierarchy is saying on this. And they said this, quote, uh, Our conference has called for many years for rational yet effective forms of regulation of these dangerous weapons. And we also urge increased mental health outreach and services to identify and treat potential areas of conflict before they become tragic occurrences. Action is needed to attempt to reduce the frequency of these aberrant acts through legislation and training. Now, you know, as I read through that, I'm thinking, well, what exactly, you know, those effective forms of regulation uh, should be. I mean, what is an effective form of re regulation? That's not specified. Hasn't been specified. But there are a lot of Catholics, you know, among those those gun owners. Uh, I've I've never seen a study on the religious breakdown of gun ownership. That might be something uh, really uh, revealing. It'd be great to see that. I think it'd be very very interesting. But you know, the difficulty, of course, is that we are in America, right? And our nation is very unique. We have the Second Amendment, which allows pretty much anyone, with some exceptions. Uh, to own a gun. And there is one writer who thinks that there are Catholic reasons for people to own a gun. So I thought, okay, let's talk about this. And you are more than welcome to join me too. If you want to sound off, maybe you own a gun, maybe you don't. Maybe you think we should have less guns. Maybe you think, you know, everybody, every citizen should have a right to to defend itself. Uh, feel free to join in. 888-914-9149. I'm joined today by the editor of Crisis Magazine, and I don't know if you're familiar with this publication. Uh, check them out online at crisismagazine.com. They do very thorough, sometimes very in-depth articles, and I uh, always appreciate frequenting their site. I do it on a very regular basis, and uh, as I said, Eric Sammons is the editor of Crisis Magazine. Good to have you with me today, Eric. Good afternoon. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. A great topic. You know, when I saw this story, I said, a Catholic case for guns. I'm thinking, what? I want to read this because, you know, a lot of people might advocate, oh, you know, we shouldn't have them or you can have them. But, yeah, we, we have a, the church is very clear in its teaching for legitimate defense and a whole litany of other things. And we can talk about some of that. But you, before we do that, you describe yourself not as a big gun guy, right? So what do, what do you That's mean right. by that? Give me your perspective. Well, to me, a gun guy is somebody who probably grew up around guns. He, he knows the gun culture, like he knows different types of guns very well. He, he, he uses them often for shooting, maybe hunting or just you know, going out for target practice, things like that. But he's very familiar with all the different uh, nuances of guns, things like that. That's not me. I, I grew up, I, I mentioned in the article, my eldest cousin died in a hunting accident a month after I was born. And wow. so really guns were removed from our family. Like I said, we weren't anti-gun, but at the same time, it just wasn't part of it. So I could not tell you all the details of the different types of handguns and, and all that. I know a little bit now, 
but so I'm, I'm definitely would not be considered what I call a, a gun guy. Uh, but over time, what I've realized is, is that I think there's a very strong moral case uh, for, for people having the freedom at the very least to, to own guns. Yeah, no, I would, I would agree that the bishops have been calling for effective and just gun control laws for a lot of years now. Um, how do you interpret that? Do you have any idea what types of, of laws that they're looking at? I don't know whether they're, you know, I mean, every time I, I, I I'm not quite sure. Like yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It usually ends up being uh, just basically restricting as many guns as you can get away with restricting, uh, as much ownership as you can. And my real challenge I would have to the a statement like the bishops made, I think you said back in May is that it's not looking at the root cause. They're looking at the gun almost as a sentient being that does these things. But there's a person behind it who does that. Now, they do mention the mental illness, and I think that is an important aspect when these things happen. Often there are uh, mental health issues that need to be addressed. But I think also there's a real spiritual problem here. For If you go out and you, and you shoot somebody in some act of violence, uh, maybe a mass shooting or, or, or robbery or, or whatever the case may be, there's often a, a spiritual root to that problem you have that you have a, you don't have a faith life, you don't have a, a real uh, a relationship with the Lord, and to me I think that's what the bishops that's kind of their job to be a focus on that is that what we really need is a spiritual revival more than anything, because what we see is these young men who often grow up one of the most common themes of these shooters is that they they grow up without fathers, yeah, and true. that really is a, a key issue that should be addressed more than anything else. Not, okay, what weapon did they happen to use when they committed their crime? But instead, why did they commit the crime in the first place? And when we you live in a society in which divorce is rampant, which, uh, in which you have so much, so many broken homes out there, then you're going to, you're going to develop broken people and broken people do, do terrible things. And so I think that's really what the focus should be. I, I would think of, of the bishops in, in response to things like this. It's like, okay, let's look at the root cause. Let's build families that are strong Catholic families. That's going to be do more than any uh, Band-Aid potential um, law, which will have consequences, negative consequences as well. Yeah, you, you know, you're right. I mean, I've, said, I've covered this issue for years on the air, and I, and I know our bishops have, have asked us to make a very serious commitment to confront um, some of these underlying uh, drivers, uh, addiction, mental illness, the, the breakdown in the family. They, they've called on society, society to provide um, uh, health services to support those who have mental illness or, or, or those, those family type of issues. And, and so often, you know, uh, we live in a culture of violence. Uh, that's, that's where we are right now. Uh, you know, a culture that celebrates violence uh, coupled with a society in which guns are very accessible. Um, you're going to see some of this, but you know, quite often a lot of these these shooters in some of these cases, um, they they've been banned from having guns, and some claim that eradicating gun violence is you know it's impossible as long as there's there's evil in the human heart. Because if you really want a gun, I think you could probably get one, and a lot of criminals can indeed do that. Um, you wrote that husbands and fathers are called to protect their families. Let's talk about that too, because. Um, their the church's teaching on legitimate defense is pretty clear. As a father, you know, I'd do everything I could. I'd lay my life down to protect my family. Um, how does the gun factor into that? Do you think that that, um, well, yeah, give me your perspective on that. Do you, do you think the gun is necessary in that equation? That's really my, being a husband and having seven children, 
raising seven children, that's really what got me more supportive of the right to bear arms. Because I have six of my seven children are, are daughters, not that I wouldn't protect my son, but you have, a father has a certain uh, protective instinct when it comes to his daughters. And there are situations in which I could be with one of my daughters and she could be in danger and a gun would be the only way to uh, potentially stop that from happening. And again, just one thing I want to make clear is yeah. obviously who handles the gun gun knows uh, responsibly, they know that you, the gun is your last option. Yeah. That's the one you don't want to go to. You want to do anything. You can want to escape the situation. You want to try to de- de-escalate the situation any way possible. The last thing you want to do is have to shoot somebody. However, it might be the only way to stop somebody. And so I would prefer to have that option if it is the only way I can stop myself or more importantly, my family from being harmed then I want to be able to do that. I want to have that option. Uh, I don't want to have only certain tools in my tool uh, yeah, basket right. and not, not have the whole, the whole range of them. So, you know, a lot of situations, most situations, even maybe you wouldn't need a gun, but right. if you do right. need one, you need one. And, and, and so that, that's why I would say you, you should have the freedom to be able to do that. In fact, I, I think that most fathers should at least consider the possibility, and I'm not saying everybody has to go out and buy a gun, but they should at least explore the possibility of responsible gun ownership that would allow them to protect their family um, in cases of a home invasion or or whatever the case may be. And that's really key. I mean, you got to be responsible. Look, and the catechism is very clear. It re-echoes, if you will, St. Thomas Aquinas. And if you have your catechism, I think it's uh, Catechism 2265, and I often say two books that I have on, on my bookshelf and it should be on everybody's spiritual library is the bible and the catechism i can give you some others but those two are great because if you've got a question about any of these things you'll find what the church teaches and here's what they teach they they said that legitimate defense can not only be a right but a grave duty to it's exactly your point there as a father you know a grave duty for someone responsible for another's life you know preserving the common good requires rendering the unjust aggressor unable to inflict harm and of course, the catechism doesn't explicitly mention firearms, but it does affirm the right to use lethal force in self-defense. I, I pray to God I'd never have to, you know, face a situation like that. But to your point, you know, depending on where you live, what the environment's like, I mean, you see some of the craziness going on in the world. Um, I think that's why we saw uh, gun ownership go up, especially during the pandemic. Oh my gosh. Uh, licenses and purchases they had records uh record record high if you want to join us our number here 888-914-9149 you can get in on the conversation my guest today eric sammons and eric let's go to margie she's got a comment for you she's listening in uh, maywood new jersey hi margie hi i'm very interested in this discussion i'm 77 years old never had a gun never i don't really want to have a gun although i think people should have the right to have a gun and what you're just talking about is, is absolutely right. You have to be able to protect yourself. And gun control is just under, gun ownership is under such control. I forget the guy's name two years ago that protected his home, he and his wife, from uh, a riot mob who broke down his fence and were threatening mm-hmm. to kill them and um, and burn down their house. Um, but getting back to guns, you know, gun, um, gun control. I've heard that more people die of knife uh, wounds than of guns, but we don't hear about knife control. We don't. How many people die in a car car accidents? We don't hear about car control, and uh, I know that sounds kind of silly, but it's something to think about. Also, 
when Hitler took over, the very first thing he yeah. did was to remove guns from the population. And one of the one of the few countries he did not try to invade was Switzerland, because everybody in Switzerland had a gun and yep. was taught how to use it. And one final thing yeah. is, yeah. I grew up in Brooklyn, but my father was from Pennsylvania. When we'd go out there, my cousins out there had had you know BB uh, BB guns or whatever, mm-hmm. and I and I would shoot them and all that. But the very first thing they were taught about guns, and my my other my two brothers ended up living in areas where where they went hunting deer for food. Um, one in Pennsylvania, one in Colorado. But the very first thing they taught their kids was never pointed at a person. Yeah. So, yeah, of course. you know, and and again, you, you needed to defend yourself. So I, I really, yeah. this frightens me, this gun control thing. It really does. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Margie, for your for your call. I appreciate it. And I thought she brought up a great point. You know, it was she mentioned Switzerland. And, and Switzerland, nearly everyone in that country owns a gun. And yet homicide rates are practically non-existent. So it's not guns that kill people, you know. It's people, and it gets us back to that point where, you know, we need to get the heart to the the center or the core of what is driving this type of dysfunction in the country and be clear on that. And at the same time, you know, you can stand with the church on the ability to uh, have a right to legitimate self-defense and to preserve your family and uh, and those you love. I've got to take a quick break. My guest today, Eric Sammons. When we come back, we'll take a few more of your calls. We only have a few minutes with him, but if you want to get in, I'll give you the number. It's 888-914-9149. Uh, Eric joins me today. We're talking about a Catholic case for guns. What are your thoughts? Uh, more when I return. We'll talk about it. Stay with me. Hi, Drew Mariani here. Hey, I am traveling to the Holy Land in February with our underwriting sponsor, Nativity Pilgrimage. Information is available at relevantradio.com slash holyland. That's relevantradio.com slash holyland. Insight and analysis you won't find anywhere else. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Great to be with you today. Thanks for joining me. The chaplet is coming up in about 10 minutes, and uh, we'll certainly pray. If you want to get in on the conversation right now, we're taking a look at guns, gun control, uh, the move towards that, uh, what the church teaches regarding uh, a legitimate right to self-defense, what our bishops are saying. Uh, And again, the catechism does not directly address private gun ownership, but it does very clearly state that you have a right to defend yourself, including using deadly force, all right? You have a right to that legitimate self-defense, not only for you, but you also have a grave duty to protect somebody whose life you're responsible for. My guest today, Eric Sammons, uh, joins me today. He's from Crisis Magazine, and we're talking about the Catholic case for guns. He's making that case, and he says he has seven children. He would certainly uh, defend them. Uh, you know, I, I think also in our last caller, I want to circle back to her, Eric, and get your thoughts on her. But, you know, she talked about Switzerland and how that was not invaded because just about everybody in that country had a weapon. And um, I also think of Rwanda. You know, back in 1994, a horrible civil war erupted between the Hutus and the Tutsis there. And as history would later reveal, of course, a million people were killed. You know, uh, it was an absolutely demonic frenzy that erupted. Uh, the perpetrators were members of military and national police and government-backed militias. 
And they went in and massacred people. They, they did it with machetes. They did it with guns. And the police and military stood by while the massacre happened and defenseless people were killed. Maybe they had weaponry. That would not have happened. So there are some cases where a nation, you can make a case for people having it both on a personal level but also on something as large as that. But your thoughts to uh, to our last caller, and then we'll jump in and grab a few more calls. Yeah, I think it's important to note that gun ownership by private citizens has a restraining force on an overreaching government. It's not that, obviously, if a, if a government of the United States decide to send their army into a town, it couldn't wipe it out. Of course it could. Of course. But they're not going to want to do that, obviously. But it just gives them hesitation to say, if we go too far, we could have an armed revolt on our hands. Just, And I mean, like some country where they really do go too far. Uh, I mean, obviously, like down in Australia right now, they're doing some horrific things of locking yeah. people down and stuff like that. And gun ownership is very low there compared to America. But just the, the, the logistics of maybe trying to take over Montana, for example, and, and instituting things where most people own guns. I think there's the highest rate gun ownership in the country. I think it's like 60 some percent. It's just it's just not realistic because law enforcement and or military or whatever would hesitate and be like, you know, I don't really think we should be doing this. All these people, if I knock on their door, I don't know what's behind it. Mm-hmm. So it just has this, it, it creates hesitation for overreaching when government wants yeah. to go beyond what the people want them to do. There is that backup that, Oh, you know, maybe we can't get away with this. Like we, we might be able to, if, if all our citizens were unarmed. Yeah. I felt during World War II, the Japanese had apprehension about, you know, coming onto American soil for that very reason. They knew how well armed Americans uh, were at that time. A lot of people had had weapons. My, my guest today, if you're just joining us, is uh, Eric Sammons. He wrote an article called The Catholic Case for Guns. And if you want to read it, if it has piqued your interest, we'll try to link over to it on our Twitter page, at Drew Mariani Show. You can go to crisismagazine.com. And check it out as well. Let's grab a few calls for you, though, before our time evaporates. Kathy in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi, I Kathy. Go right ahead. Come in a number, yeah, a number of years ago, we had a home invasion uh, in the middle of the night, and uh, the invader was about to attack my teenage daughter. Wow. My, he then ran out of the tried to run out of the house. My husband and my 17-year-old son tried to catch him but he got away but anyway the bottom line was that was very frightening for all of us and and so my son uh eventually not too many years later got concealed carry and i would never never discourage him from doing that because of that experience and he's never had to use a gun but he did get concealed to carry and i think that i would hate to see that go away so that's my comment because it's a pretty traumatic event to oh, happen yeah. to a family yeah, I, I think if somebody, uh, Eric, like like Kathy's family, you know, somebody invades the privacy and the sanctuary of your home, or if you're a victim of assault, you almost feel better knowing that now that you know you can protect yourself. I can't imagine the PTSD and and, and the the loss of security that one one felt there. But your thoughts for Kathy? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's just awful. When whenever something like that happens, it's just, it's just horrifying. And I do do think it really leaves scars in in your psyche from from that happening. Yeah, but the fact is, is if you are well trained and, and not like a military trained, but I just mean if you if you own a gun at home, you have it in a place that you can access it in a safe way, and that you're you you kind of know what to do in these situations. It does give you a certain level of comfort that that you know you can protect yourself, and more importantly, you can protect your family. Uh, those under your care, if something like that happens, and and there are the thing is the media never really reports this, but this happens 
all the time where a home invader is stopped by a citizen, a, a, the homeowner who owns a gun is able to stop them from doing some serious damn you know, harm to the people. And, and it just happens all the time. They don't want to report it, but this happens all the time. And thank God that these, that these people uh, own guns, that they could stop an intruder, a home invader from, from harming them or their family. Yeah. All right. Mike is listening in Chicago. Kathy, thank you for sharing that story, by the way. Uh, Mike, good afternoon. Hey, Drew. You know, this is why I always carry nunchucks with me, Drew, because, you know, no one messes with someone with nunchucks. And with them babies around, that's all you, that's all you need. That's something else. Yeah, I, I, if all they, I, I saw nunchucks. I wouldn't try taking your wallet, that's for sure. Right, but, you know, Thanks, the thing Mike. is also is, like, you don't want to always be, you know, reliable on your gun. You need to use your hands as well. So good self-defense for everybody. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Are you an expert in martial arts, Mike? You've... Yes, I am. Yeah, that's what I figured. There you go. You never know who you're going to come up against, too. Hey, thank you. Uh, you're you're right. Now, to his point, I think it's really an important one. There, uh, the gun's got to be the last alternative. I, I mean, I, I would never ever want to take anybody's life. You know, I would never want to do that. Well, what about alternatives, though? I mean, there are some people who say, okay, well, let's not use guns. There are non-lethal weapons now that um, are projectile-based. For example, you can buy a gun for $300, not, not, a, not one that fires ammo, but one that fires uh, like military-grade pepper balls that if they hit the individual or they strike somewhere near, it sets off this oxygen-sucking, eye-burning, you know, absolutely debilitating uh, type of uh, spray that will stop somebody in their tracks. And if the person can't breathe or see, they're not going to attack you. Would that be a, a viable alternative, or do you think you, should, you know the gun is probably the better choice ultimately, Eric? Well, I, I'm not an expert on that technology or anything like that, but I would say that it's it's well known that even a gun it takes multiple shots shots sometimes to stop somebody who is very high on drugs or something like that. They can withstand a lot, and that's why, in fact, uh, some some guns are, are are not powerful enough. They're not very good for protection. And so I would guess that that could be, I don't know if I'd trust that. I would want to trust something a little bit more reliable that I know that if I fire the, the gun at, 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 the, at the target, it will be stopped. I don't want to have to worry about the fact that, well, maybe it will or maybe it won't. It might just enrage them because that, you know, when somebody is high on drugs, it's amazing what the body can withstand and continue to do because my wife actually took a class on uh uh, a medical class on how to uh, help people with gun wounds and stuff like that. And she really learned a lot about how you can actually fire and hit somebody with a pretty good uh, accuracy, but still they're going to keep coming. And so I, I would want something that I know could, could stop the person. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. Let's, uh, let's go to Roddy in, uh, in Chicago. Roddy, good afternoon. You're on the air. Welcome. Good afternoon. Drew calling from a city that's been hit by a crime wave. I just want to amen a violent crime wave, amen your speaker, that uh, the problem is a societal one in which social welfare system destroyed the black family, the black American family, close to 75% grew up fatherless. And what happens is even though black males are around 6% of the U.S. population, they commit a majority of the murders in America from statistics I saw in 2018. And uh, uh, sub-Saharan African immigrants to America don't have the same crime profile. They don't get into violent crime. And they have a solid family, father, mother usually, 
and the black American yeah. family has been destroyed by social welfare and uh, all, all the right. problems that causes for everybody. Roddy, thank you for that point. It brings us back to what I was saying a little bit earlier. I mean, gun control is something we hear often after these mass shootings and these acts of violence, Eric. But but fundamentally, I mean, we really need to heal the woundedness of the human heart. We need to we need to strengthen the family. We, we, you know, you take a look at some of these these uh, school shooters. Quite often, they were bullied. You know, quite often it wasn't their gun. It was her parents' gun that had been taken. I got less than a minute to go. My apologies to everybody on hold because I would love to have heard from you. Uh, your thoughts, your final thoughts here as we wrap this up. And, of course, if anyone wants to read your writing, it's a Crisis Magazine, or you can find it on our, our Twitter page. But final thoughts, Eric. I, I really think as Catholics we need to do two things. One is we really need to work to heal that brokenness in the world so that we don't have these mass shootings and don't have things like that in our own communities. Do what we can to really help uh, family, young men, especially who come from broken homes, do everything we can to help them. And then secondly, I do think though we have to be prudent, we have to be smart. And so I think every Catholic, especially Catholic uh, parents, should should consider the idea of, of having a firearm for protection that they are trained in and they know how to use responsibly. Uh, and, and it will allow them to potentially protect um, their family well, in, in terrible situations. Eric, thank you. Check out his article, The Catholic Case, uh, Case for Guns. I'll be right back. 